This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Queen God Is. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. I am a performance artist and a performance art therapist. I do a fusion work between spoken word poetry, literary poetry, hip hop, theater, movement, music, and soul. And as a performance art therapist, I work with everyone from young people to adults who are seeking to use the arts as a way of transformational healing, community building, self-reflection. And it's a very unique work because it bridges off my own process as an artist, but it also engages other people in their process, whether they consider themselves to be artists or not. Like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you, and it was plain to see, you were my destiny. You're Anytime you need me, for real girl, it's me in your world Believe me, nothing make a man feel better than a woman Queen with a crown, that be down for whatever there were few The first song up on my list is Your All I Need, Method Man, featuring Mary J. Blige. Well, the song shows up in my life during a time when I'm having a very unique relationship with hip-hop and soul. To begin with, my father was a director at a black theater company that he helped start coming out of college. It was called Black Spectrum Theater. And as I got older and got to learn about my dad, not only as a dad, but as a, a person, a man, a human being, I learned a lot about him through his musical taste. His favorite artist of all time, and this is the first time I ever saw him cry when this, his favorite artist was actually killed, was Marvin Gaye. And so I have a relationship with the original of this song. Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. So when the song came back around as a remix, I already had a special connection because of my dad. Like sweet morning dew, I took one look at you, and it was plain to see you were my destiny. There was something in Method Man's lyric that just stood out to me. 
You're all that I need. I'll be there for you. If you keep it real with me, I keep it real with you. And at the end of that phrase, he gets to this term. And plus, you got the ill power you. And those words, power you, um, were curious to me. Um, at the time I was growing up, I, I, had a, I had an older brother who was heavily into hip hop. So he taught me a lot of different things. And the phrase power you comes from something that he was studying at the time and that my mom had actually studied. Um, and it's a phrase that is an abbreviated acronym that means a lot of different things. And I kind of leave it up to people to go and do their own research. But there was something about that phrase, plus you got the ill power you that just stood out to me. And at the time I didn't understand it, but years later in 2006, well, I began my first album in 2001 coming out of school and I was thinking of what to call it. All those years later, that phrase stuck with me. And I knew that I needed to call my first album Power You before I even started recording it. It was just an interesting turn of phrase that for me represented a lot of things. It represented gender, it represented womanhood, it represented a strength, it represented just the ways in which positive things can be made derogatory, it represented a whole gamut of things. And so I was like, I knew I'm going to call my album Power You, and then I had to figure it out. So I had the title, and then 16 tracks later, I had an understanding of what my personal connection was to that, understanding what reflected me in the culture and what did not, what I had the power to shift and to change, and as a woman who also happens to be an MC, how to use language to tell my story and also to transform the stories that are being told about me. It's one of the best collaborations, I feel, ever, which takes the best of what was happening in R&B and soul at the time, and the best of what was happening in hip-hop at the time. Of course, Method Man being courtesy of Wu-Tang, so you just couldn't go wrong with that. And then it had the echoings of one of the greatest soul artists of all time from the past, Marvin Gaye. To me, that song never was about just a relationship between a man and a woman, but it really was a relationship between these two art forms and how they could find balance with each other. Mary J. Blige being a representation of all that soul had evolved to be in the 90s and Method Man being a representation of this pseudo underground hip hop movement with a major cult following, being able to take that and put it in a mainstream way. So yes, it is a relationship, but to me it was it was less about gender and man-woman as it was a marrying of worlds and ideas, marrying of underground and mainstream. I mean, maybe that was a lot to get from that one song, <laughs> but I felt like you know there were so many layers to what Wu-Tang was doing that it was never just about one thing and it definitely was not just about what it looked like on the surface. I was born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn, which 
It's a very unique place to be born and raised. It is currently one of the last places to be gentrified, if that lets you know anything. <laughs> I grew up with both my parents. I have three siblings. And I was growing up during a time where the streets were really being flooded with violence and crack. I got to see that transformation. So it went from being a rather decent neighborhood, family-oriented community, so to speak, where people knew each other. They at least knew each other's names. They may not have hung out. It wasn't that time when people were borrowing sugar and hanging out, but we knew who each other was. That was a time where I would definitely be outside playing double dutch with my friends, listen to music on my stoop. The boys would play football. The girls would join in. Skelly, hopscotch, all those things. And I remember the day when all that changed and then East New York had a different face for me. I was outside playing with my siblings and some friends on the block and three dudes just ran down a, the street shooting and it was broad daylight. That was the last day, I was in third grade, that was the last day in my neighborhood that I went outside ever again for a considerable amount of time to just play with my friends. So I got your back, but your best to watch the front. Cause it's the niggas who front, baby pulling stunts. I got your back, but your best to watch the front. Cause it's the niggas who front, baby pulling stunts. I got your back, but your best to watch the front. Cause it's the niggas who front, baby pulling stunts. I got your back, but your best to watch the front. Cause it's the niggas who front, baby pulling stunts. I got your back, but your best to watch the front. Cause it's the niggas who front, baby pulling stunts. I got your back, but your best to watch the front. That moment just was a pivotal moment for me because I knew that I had to get in and get out, do what I needed to do in school, get the grades that I wanted to get. You know, I love Brooklyn, I was raised there. I didn't really know what Brooklyn was because I was too young to do any exploration by myself. My parents definitely did a lot of things with us, but as far as when the neighborhood started to change, they definitely kind of pulled the reins in and kept to keep us safe. But at 13, I had to make the decision where I wanted to go to high school. And whereas a lot of my peers were going to high schools in Brooklyn or in Manhattan or the city, I got the opportunity to go to boarding school. My parents actually gave me the opportunity to make a choice to stay in Brooklyn in my neighborhood and fight to get my education because that's the time when they were putting metal detectors in schools. Kids were carrying weapons. All kinds of things were the impetus for this change in the youth dynamic that was happening. And I got to make a choice, and I chose that I wanted to be able to get my education, learn something new about myself in an environment where I didn't have to fight just to do those basic things. I went to a boarding school in East Hampton, Massachusetts. So for four years as a teenager, that's where I was. And it was great for me in a lot of ways as I learned a lot about people and from people. Most of my education was just from studying people from different cultures. And of course, it was a predominantly white school. A lot of the people there had no idea about Brooklyn or what it was about or me or where I was from or the way my family did things. What I can say that I'm most proud of is I was able to take everything that I am, that my parents raised me to be, everything that my neighborhood, my community, and the lack thereof had made me to be and create a space for myself in a place that was not used to seeing a person like me. 
So most people go to places like that from Brooklyn, they go into culture shock and they don't know how to be themselves and they start to code switch or conform. But I was able to take Brooklyn with me to this school and make a space for myself there. And at the end of it, the school received as much from me as I received from it. Oh my God. I think for a lot of young people of color who go to predominantly white schools, institutions, you get in a position where you feel like every classroom you're in, every room you're in, you have to be the show and tell or the teacher. And so at 13, you're learning how to negotiate things that most people don't know how to negotiate until they're older. But I learned really quick that I am not there to be everybody's professor because they were not paying me for that. <laughs> In fact, I had to pay to go to school. So I had to make very clear boundaries between giving myself a young life where I got to just be a teenager, which was hard, and being a representative of my culture. And it got real ridiculous after a while. You know, the things that fascinate people because they've never met anybody who looked like you or had hair like yours or grew up where you grew up. There's a way where you can represent yourself well and say, yeah, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is what I eat, this is what I don't eat, and do not touch my hair. You can say all those things, right? <laughs> and you can find a way to do that, but to still preserve your space. Coming out of boarding school senior year, I decided for my final project, instead of writing what would have been a thesis, to do a performance project. I went through my four years of being there and I saw all the people who had made an impact in my life, including teachers who I felt like were racist and or ignorant, teachers who challenged me because they didn't think I could learn certain things because of what I looked like, teachers who were amazing to me. And I cast them all in my show. And we had to recreate this cultural exchange on stage in 60 minutes and complete with an introduction to me spiritually, where I'm from, my family, how I got my name, all the way through our journeys crossing, us crossing paths and then everybody got a little moment to share their monologue and the soundtrack for that was just music that helped me make it through those four years without losing my mind or going into culture shock but the feedback that I got people would leaving notes in my mailbox or stopping me on the lawn on the quad or calling leaving voicemail messages or cards because it was one of the first times for many people that they had very authentic cultural exchange that was not dumbed down or poked or prodded like it was an exhibit at a distance, but we got to participate in sharing our story and our interaction and our relationship. And I got to do that creatively. And so one of the gifts about going to that school, which I don't know would have been afforded to me in some of the places I could have gone to school back home, was the resources to do it and my courage and guts <laughs> to make use of those resources to say this is who I am this is what I've been doing here and this is where I want to go we are a nation with no geographic boundaries bound together through our beliefs we are like-minded individuals sharing a common vision pushing toward a world rid of color lines the next song I'm really excited about because that was a pivotal moment for me as a young performance artist. I was in elementary school and it was Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation that 
just was a stunning piece of work. It was the first time that watching a music video had done it for me. It brought the song to life in a new way. And as you know, she's just an awesome artist, entertainer, but her dancing is just spectacular. I was the queen of talent shows, <laughs> and that's what I became known for in school. So we'd have this thing called the Spring Festival every year, and each class would have to pick a performance to do. They could make it up, it could be a song they made up, or they could recreate something. So with my eighth grade class, I decided to recreate the video, Rhythm Nation, live and stage at Thomas Jefferson High School for our Spring Festival. And I played Janet, I made my own costume, and I put that costume on and I kept it on for the whole day. I walked down the streets of Brooklyn in my Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation costume. like a superstar. People kind of just looked at me and responded so amazingly. I, I just, I felt it. And by the time I got to that stage, I killed that solo. I don't even know what I did. I don't know if, the chore if I choreographed it well or not, if I got the movements down to a T. But the audience went crazy. I was not pretending to be Janet Jackson. I was Janet Jackson. <laughs> I just knew from that moment that I needed to be on stage doing my work. The song itself is a an empowerment song, just really challenging people to think about the world, to try to make a, a change, but also to, to just unify in a very powerful way. I mean, it echoed the Black Panther movement just aesthetically, and it was one of the first videos that just, I felt at that time was really well, really well done. Her dancing was just super incredible. She was able to do things with her body that a lot of people still cannot figure out. So as an artist who really appreciates not only someone sounding good in the studio, but bringing it all together on stage, it moved me in that way. Lyrically, it moved me in that way. And Janet is just, I don't care who comes out for the next 50 years, I don't think anybody has ever been able to touch what she was, what she contributed to, to music and pop culture. She arguably doesn't have one of the strongest voices ever, but the way that she used her full body in her art was her voice. And to me, that was just undeniably strong. started out as a dancer. So I was largely doing dance contests, hip hop movement, dance contests. 
And actually being a dancer is what helped get me into emceeing. Being an MC is what got me into wanting to be a poet and spoken word artist. So one thing just kind of lent itself to the other very easily. And it was important to be able to declare myself as such because the minute you start doing something professionally and people start scrutinizing your work or trying to classify you, categorize you, they want to compartmentalize you. So I had to kind of put my foot down with a lot of people and say, yes, some years I'm a poet more than I'm an MC. Some years I do theater more than I do any of it. But each form is actually informing the other. As a woman artist, it's so easy to be categorized, especially a woman artist who does do some element of hip hop. So I just started early instead of using any one of those titles individually, I just say that I am a performance artist. The delivery of the work, the live version of the work is really important to me. It's the connection with the audience that's really important. A lot of artists forget that you could be on a stage anywhere and some of the people may not speak your language. Some of the people may be deaf. Some of them might be blind. We usually perform for a very particular imagined audience. We forget that there's all these other people who need to see, feel, hear you and understand. And I learned this my first time on tour in Paris with Les Nubian. It was dead silence while I was delivering a poem. And I wasn't used to that. You know, I was growing up in New York during the heart of the spoken word resurgence. Everybody would hoot and holler and respond to every word or pun or catchphrase or clap or, you know, just some call and response. So to go to Paris and perform, and I'm performing my heart out, you hear me? And it was like you could hear a pin drop in a stadium that had over 10,000 people. And it almost, I almost felt crushed. I was like, oh gosh, I'm not used to this. What is going on? But the minute I got to my last word, the audience, the entire stadium erupted. And I would say 90% of them didn't speak English. And so what I learned from that, which is what I learned from Janet, what I learned from Michael, what I learned from anyone who, for me, was a complete artist, is that you're communicating with every inch of your body, from your eyes, to your hair, to your moves, to your voice, to your... all of it. If there's any rhythm or humming that comes in there, that might stand out more than the actual pun or play on words. The, the hottest punchline you have, it could be this really subtle but powerful movement that you did. And so from then, I was like, I have to honor all of it. Yeah, couldn't stand it. Damn it. It was frightening. Her whole style was like lightning. And instead of calling her Biggie, all the MCs called her Titan because she was more than notorious for the flows that she was spitting. Buddha stood up and tried to battle, but he ended up just sitting in a lotus position. Forgot that she was on a mission. He At 13, my parents divorced. Prior to divorce, the household, if you can imagine, was four children, both parents, 
heavily connected to arts and culture, do all kinds of things with us, take us to all kinds of events and ceremonies, give us a chance to just be exposed to who we were through different programming, concerts, events. And in our household, my mother was one of the most creative, I guess, interior designers of a household that I've ever met. And that each inch of the household not only reflected who we are culturally, but the possibilities of who we are even beyond that. So if you were to walk into my house and walk up the steps, which is the first thing that you would see, on the walls of the stairwell were these paintings and calendars of the great kings and queens of Africa. So I'd have to walk by the great kings and queens of Africa every day. And for many of those years, you know, it's just your house. It's just the backdrop. You don't pay attention. But then as you start getting older and you start walking down the stairs or up the stairs a little bit slower, you start like, well, who are these people? And they left it up to us to investigate. A lot of people have paintings of flowers and strangers, people who don't look like them. And we had artwork that reflected our ancestry. And so our household was just filled with those things. I remember one day I came home, my mother's personal therapy was to paint the house. So you could come home any given day and the house would be a completely different color. And I don't mean any normal color. Wooden parquet floors and my mother painted them lavender. So you walk in the house a lot, you'd be like, what the heck? That was the phrase that you normally would give if my mother was doing anything from her own cutting her hair or hairstyles to how she decorated the house. And she would never ask if we wanted it that way or tell us or warn us, but we would come home and it'd be a whole new world every time. And so nothing was a mundane experience. You were always stepping into a piece of history, culture, spirituality, and or possibility. Make some noise for Queen God is. There's a tradition in my family for renaming ceremonies. It's a tradition that my mom actually implemented. So when she turned 18, she was doing a lot of studying of different things as she was kind of creating her own identity, the self-exploration that most teenagers do. And she decided that she wanted to do two things when she had her children. One was to have a rites of passage ceremony and two, to instill the concept of a renaming ceremony because she believes, like many cultures believe, that when you're born, you're one thing. But then over years, as you make choices and live your life, you become more of who you are. And so the name that you're given at birth may or may not reflect who you are becoming. And so the rites of passage and renaming ceremony honors that evolution. And so when I was young, I want to say 13 was when I had my rites of passage. And mind you, my mom had done a renaming ceremony for herself and for my father and my siblings. All of us don't choose to use our our name. It's up to us. And for me, mine resonated. A lot of people think it's just an artist's name, but it's not. And so I received that name then and I decided to use it. It echoed those moments of walking home and passing the calendars of the great kings and queens of Africa and just knowing that Yes, I am down to earth. Yes, I am human. Yes, I make mistakes. Yes, I bleed. You know, I cry, all these things. But there's also more to me than meets the eye. And so the name for me is the affirmation and reflection of that. Queen God is a queen of myself, the presence of a great spirit 
is my surname, which is a statement. God is no matter who, what, when, where, why, or how much God still is. Nothing even matters. Lauren Hill featuring D'Angelo. I just love Lauren Hill's voice. She was artist whose life and career, especially in the late 90s when her album came out. I was interning at Sony Music. That was one of the jobs I had coming out of high school. So I uh, did internship at Sony Music for a couple of years and I had access to the record labels and that was the first time I actually started my collection of CDs because we were able on Fridays to go into Columbia. We had, if you had friends working on the different floors where the labels were. I was working in the corporate affairs department. I don't know why, because I was daydreaming about being next to the record labels. But we would go on Fridays, and if you had friends, you could get to go into the CD vault and get every album that ever existed under Sony affiliates. And when I remember her album came out, and I was able to get it first, and it became an inspiration for me for many reasons. Some of them I think are obvious because a lot of people really love that work. But I got a chance one day to go and to be in the studio with her. A friend of mine was good friends with Commissioner Gordon who was working with her at the time. And we went to Chunky Studios in New York City and she was putting ad-libs on the album. So D'Angelo wasn't there for this song but she was working on Nothing Even Matters. And I was just sat there all night. I think we got there about 8 p.m. And she was just doing ad-libs. And I watched this woman do certain ad-libs and riffs that everybody loves till this day a thousand times and it never got tired I mean it was long but I was like she could have did it a thousand more and I felt honored to just watch her <laughs> put the finishing touches on this masterpiece and by the time we looked up at the clock it was six o'clock in the morning and I sat in the studio just kind of like a fan admiring Lauren Hill do her dirty work for her album for all those hours until the sun came up that song till this day will mean a lot to me because of getting inside unplugged access to watching a masterful artist do her work. My introduction to hip hop is literally through my brother. My brother was going through a relationship and it was his first heartbreak and he was 16 years old and he had just gotten his first record player and he must have played Slick Rick's Teenage Love a thousand times, over and over. I never had a radio of my own. He was the one that got all the electronics and the appliances, and I got like games and dolls and stuff, just because that's what I was interested in at the time. But his room was right across the hall from mine, so I'm listening to him listen to this song over and over and have a relationship with it. And so then it made me start paying attention to Slick Rick and just some of the other artists in that time more closely. And KRS-One, Boogie Down Productions, and just that whole movement became at the top of my list.
it really ain't the rap audience that's bugging. It's one or two suckers, ignorant brothers, trying to rob and steal from one another. You get caught in the mid. So to crush that stereotype, here's what we did. We got ourselves together so that you could unite and fight for what's right. Not negative cause. The way we live is positive. We don't kill our relatives. Pop, 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 At the time that self-destruction came out, which is part of Stop the Violence movement, was really important for me because I was seeing these changes happen in my neighborhood where I could no longer go outside to play or I had to really choose what school to go to to make sure I was safe. And so it made sense. It, I mean, the song was hot, the beat was hot, and then all of your favorite artists were on it. It was one of the first times in hip hop that it was a complete song with a purpose. And it was a movement. If Twitter existed during that time, stop the violence and self-destruction would have been hashtag every day. <laughs> At that time, I hadn't decided that I wanted to be an MC just yet, but I did decide that I wanted hip hop in my life. And that song was primarily the reason. Funky fresh dress to impress, ready to party. Money in your pocket, dying to move your body. To get inside, you pay the whole $10. Scotch safe with a razor blade, take to your car. Leave the guns in the crack and the knobs alone. MC lights on the microphone, bum rushing and pushing, snatching and taxing. I cram to understand why brothers don't be maxing. There's only one disco, they'll close one more. You ain't guarding the door. So what you got a gun for? Do you rob the rich and give to the poor? Yo, daddy-o. School this, some this, more. This straight from the mouth. A why and daddy-o. Do a crime, end up in jail and, and gotta, gotta go. go. Cause you could do crime and get paid today. And tomorrow you're behind bars in the worst way. Far from your family. Cause you're locked away. Now tell me. Do you really think crime pays? Speaking on taking what your brother had? You little sucker. You talking all that jazz. It's time to so fast forward 10 years, or a little bit more, and you had the situation with Amadou Diallo and all of the political injustices that were happening again and the, the violence at the ha hands of police brutality. I was heavily into music at that time, and I was the music director for a magazine called Blue Magazine, which came out of upstate New York. And it was a pseudo-political slash music magazine, really powerful movement that was short-lived, but really great. And I got the chance to be in the studio with Mos Def, Taleb Kweli, and a whole group of MCs, again, as they were creating the song for 41 Shots. I mean, sitting next to Common, watching him create his verse around this tragedy that had happened in the community and artists struggling to try to figure out what they could do to use their voice to change it. And I remember Common was writing his verse with purple marker onto a crinkled up piece of paper. Some of them didn't have paper or pen. They were just making it in their head. Dead Prez was there. Ty Phoenix was there, another female MC who was on Loud Records at the time. It wasn't even about what their verses ended up sounding like or how well the song did. But to sit there all together and watch them create this moment, that was probably the most comparable moment to how self-destruction was created. And to be in the midst of it, that was amazing. After high school, I knew that I wanted to be in an environment that nurtured me doing what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to stay in New York City, and I wanted to go to a place where I could create or have a hands-on approach to my own major. 
So I went to Vassar College. I designed an independent major called Community Growth and Development, focusing on the role of music and art in social movement, community building, and youth empowerment. But at the same time that I was in school, I declared that I wanted to be a full-time professional artist and get credit for traveling, performing, participating in panel discussions and workshops, interviewing other artists and their role in the community. And so I did. By the time I became a senior in college, I only had one class that met one day a week. And the rest of the time I was out in the field doing the work that I wanted to do, getting credit for it. And when I graduated, I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to take things, but I knew that I wanted to find a bridge between being full-time artist and being a facilitator of other people in their creative process. Hey, yo, Teddy. Yo. I ran into that young lady Maria last night. What? Must have been her husband's payday. Man. she brought me to see a brand new diamond link that you see me with on. Mm. See, you know what I'm saying? You know why? Why well, can't when I get the job done, I'll work. I'll work. I'll work. I'll work. I'll work. I'll work. Baby. I've always been good with young people. A lot of the classes and organizations where peers would struggle with getting their attention or commanding their respect, I never really had that issue. And I took that as a calling, that if I had, was able to affect particularly young people, people my age, peers, in a way that was able to get their attention and to really inspire them and challenge them, then I needed to do something with that because I know a lot of teachers, professors, activists struggle with that, especially with depending on what walk of life young people come from. So I started doing that work at an early age. And in high school, it's one of the things that saved me. Once I committed to doing that work, it gave me uh, inspiration to just kind of keep going. So I would go to Springfield when I was in high school and do a lot of work there. There's a quote unquote urban community that had a lot of at-risk youth struggling with different things. And I was just effective with them. And I decided that I wanted to take the best of what art could offer. A lot of people don't do traditional therapies. They can't afford it or don't believe in it. But a lot of people love art and come to art, music, visual art, etc., performance art, because it moves them. It makes them feel comfortable being vulnerable. It makes them feel like they are understood. And so it was a perfect tool to use that to help people to transform their, their lives, to tell their story. does with narrative is very interesting and I think that that is one of the testimonies to its greatness but also to its weakness. A lot of MCs, artists came out telling their perspective of the world from their vantage point, telling you how things were. So the parts of the world that were being overlooked or made irrelevant, they were saying, no, 
it's not irrelevant it's important to me it's not the best or it might not be perfect but this is what it is and this is how it influenced my life and this is what it is and this is what it is and this is what it is and there is something really important about that sharing the narrative as you see it to be there's also something really powerful that can happen within hip-hop and that does happen sometimes is when you get to create a new story what's possible what it could be, what it could be, what it could be. I don't think that many of us take the opportunity to do that enough. And so we do get stuck in a certain narrative. As a performance art therapist, it's really important for people to tell their stories. What we know in therapy about narrative is that sometimes the story that you're telling is not the story that's healing you or liberating you. It's the one that's keeping you stuck in a place that may no longer be serving you. It's the one that's making you feel like you can't go beyond. It's the one that makes your, all five of your albums sound the same. What is possible becomes really important because hip-hop artists are creators. You know, we create worlds with our words. At least we have the opportunity to do that. And even in myself, it's a challenge sometimes because you get so used to talking about certain things. But I am at a place where I don't want to complete this next album until I can challenge myself to tell about where I've been, what I've been doing, what's going on in my life, but also where I want to go and what I want to create. Hip-hop matters because more than it being about music and an aesthetic. It was part of a great shift that happened on the planet in which a whole group of people got to be heard, recognized, and more importantly, they got to also inspire a whole nother group of people. And now people are connecting through music in ways that they can't do through many other forms or forums. Hip hop matters because it created space for people to create space to be and to connect. In a fat ass crib with thousands of kids Work life, you don't need a ring to be my wife Just be there for me and I'ma make sure we Be living in the effing lap of luxury I'm realizing that you didn't have to fuck with me But you did, now I'm going all out kid And I got mad love to give You my nigga